Each week, Richard and Father Mark present a rigorous discussion of the Bible in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. Over 24,000 episodes are downloaded each month at no charge. Please consider marking your level of support with a one-time donation or by pledging a small amount per episode. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When Paul talks about being absent from the body... Our Hellenized ears want to believe that he is talking about a dualism with some version of a platonic soul inhabiting or exiting our earthen vessel. As appealing as this may be to some, it has nothing to do with St. Paul's letter. Paul is not talking about your soul leaving your body. On the contrary, he is admonishing you to embrace discomfort in your body, trusting God's teaching against all hope, especially when it is unpleasant. In the immortal words of Tertullian, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Richard and I discuss 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 127 of the Bible as Literature podcast. There's an assumption that goes unstated very often on this program, and that is the subject of the Bible. We were having an offline conversation about how Eve in Genesis represents the city, and that's why the creation of Eve is pejorative, because Adam wanted to make his own partner. He made something out of himself, and he built a city. People hear this, and they get offended because it seems to imply that woman is less than man. That is how people read Genesis. Even without this extra emphasis on the negative function of the city in Genesis, they imagine that Genesis is somehow putting woman in a lower station. And that's because they are approaching the text with the wrong assumption. The text is not about human beings. The subject of the story is not anthropology. The subject of the story is God's teaching, and the teaching of Genesis is a critique of civilization. It's a critique of what men create. It's a critique of what the city does to human communities. It's a critique of everything man constructs that goes against the will of God for his creatures. Realize that whenever we talk about empire, even at the time of Paul, Empire really is just a big city. We talk about the Roman Empire. Well, what is Rome? Rome is a city. We talk about the Babylonian Empire. What is Babylon? A city. The empire is the city run rampant. City that takes over the entire world. And in scripture, from the beginning of the Old Testament, there is this tension between the people who live out on the fringes of society as shepherds, and you have the people who live within the society, within the civilization, the kings, the priests who live inside the city. And it's always a tension. And the prophet 
spends much more time critiquing the king and the priest than he does critiquing the shepherd. The Israelites, before they were called Israelites, living in Sinai as a flock with a single shepherd is idealized. Whereas Israel living in Jerusalem in the city was a problem for God to manage. This living within a society of a city and everything that goes along with it affects the way that human beings relate to each other in a negative way because in a nomadic or shepherd society, everyone is responsible for everybody else. Everyone has to take care of everybody else. And if anyone starts taking more of something, the rest of the tribe will take care of that person, either sanctioning them or even killing them. I mean, this is how ancient societies always function in this context. It's only once you get into the city and the complex life of the city do you start to have crime, where people are taking from each other and not returning. You have people who are taking more than their fair share. There are people who are victimizing other people, and there's no way for the rest of the society to even things out. And this is where God has to step in because the power is now lopsided. With all this in mind, it's important to remember that in Scripture, God is not talking about what human beings are. God is giving an instruction. All you have is what God tells you to do. And the only thing that matters with respect to human beings in the story is that they have to do what God says. It's commandment and then action based on the commandment. It is not an anthropological text. And you cannot be anthropocentric when you hear scripture. 1 Corinthians, flowing into 2 Corinthians, is establishing tribal order against the grain of the city in the New Testament. Exactly. That's what's going on. So please, when you hear Paul talking in this chapter about not being at home in one's own body or about dwelling in the heavenly city, you have to hear it not in terms of what's going to happen to you. You have to hear it in terms of what the real subject of the story is, which is God's commandment and whether or not we follow it. That is the story. The story is the story of God's commandment and the rebellion against it. If you understand that that's what's going on in every page of scripture, it will save you from Western philosophy, which is a prison of the mind. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Don't forget that Paul has been talking about the struggle that he's had to go through in order to fulfill the teaching. When Paul acts according to the teaching, there are physical consequences, and he goes through about the beatings and the imprisonments and that sort of thing that he's had to undergo. There's a real physical cost to follow this teaching. So the earthly tent, which is our house, meaning the body. So when it's torn down, we have a building from God. When all this biological concern is taken care of, then we can fulfill the law without any problem. The only thing getting between me and fulfilling God's law is my biology. We talked about Eve at the outset of this discussion. The earthly tent, the earthly construction, the fleshly building, the sons of Cain, the lineages in Genesis take us down this path where we see the outcome of what we build with human hands. That's what's at stake here. So Paul is already saying, once again, God is offering you 
a dwelling place. God is going to provide a house for you, made by his hands, something that you didn't build. But you still are rebelling as we rebelled in Genesis. We rebel in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You still want to revert back to your construction. So there's a tension that's being set up here. The house that we build, our tent, is going to be torn down. But there's a promise that God will provide a tent in the wilderness and gather his tribe together and provide life. So you have to choose. That's what's at stake here. I'm afraid that when people see eternal in the heavens, they immediately zoom to philosophy. So when it says, not made with hands eternal in the heavens, you have to hear it and contextualize it once again in Ecclesiastes. It's simply stressing the fact that you are temporary. So you're trying to join yourself to something that isn't temporary that you can't understand. And that's where the tension is in the letter. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. This is the tension of the biological being who wants to keep himself alive, but who is at the same time desiring to fulfill God's teaching. And this is the tension. You know, the desire to fulfill God's teaching is not the same as doing God's teaching. And that's where the struggle is. And this is exactly what Paul is pointing at. Most people hear, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, and they immediately jump to, I want to live forever. But Paul is setting us up to say, look, your problem is that you want to survive. Your problem is you're thinking about what you can get out of this for your own personal benefit. And your frame of reference is the house at which you currently feel at home, which is your earthen vessel. And you've got it backwards. You have it totally backwards. What you have to desire is not what you want for your earthen vessel. What you have to desire is what the commandment instructs you to do, which means you have to desire God's instruction, desire his wisdom. That's the clothing. That's the dwelling from the heavens. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. Once again, it's the Genesis reference. Are you interested in becoming God, and so you want to be able to become as wise as God? And do your own thing. Are you interested in being able to sacrifice animals, which is a violation of God's order for creation, taking life, shedding blood, which is the domain of God? And so now you have to wear clothes because you violated God's commandment in the garden? Paul is saying you can still be found naked. You can still be exposed the way your father Adam and your mother Eve were exposed in their sins because of their rebellion. And the only way to be covered, well, there's two ways of being covered. There's the one way of being covered, which is the earthly tent, which we know it's going to be torn down, or the heavenly tent, which is eternal. And the way that we are clothed in that eternal heavenly tent is by putting on the actions of Torah of God's teaching. We talked about this in the last chapter where the inner hidden things are the desire to do what is expedient for my biological survival. And the correct actions that follow the spirit of God are the actions that follow God's teaching. And it's convenient from the perspective of our earthen vessel and it seems appropriate when we are struggling for our own survival to take life in order to put clothing on our backs. And that's what Paul is striking at here. So you see how people twist these texts and they take a text that is attacking your desire to build yourself up and they make it into an uber manifestation of uh, self-help and self-improvement. 
how do I strive for the eternal kingdom? You don't strive for anything. You simply clothe yourself not with the garment you weave, but with the garment of the commandments of God. For indeed, while we are in this tent, meaning the earthen vessel, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed. We are like Adam and Eve. We want to follow God, but we really believe that we need to kill that animal and shed blood in order to have clothes. Never mind that God already clothed us with his wisdom and his care. We want a shirt on our back so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. And this is the struggle of the person who wants to follow the will of God and follow the teaching of God, but then has physical penalties for doing so. Imprisonment, torture, whatever Paul talks about. Biologically, the last thing I want is physical pain. I don't want to go to prison. I don't want to be beaten. Yet, I want that heavenly tent. Ah, you can't have it both ways. You can either choose the path of biological safety and biological assuredness, although the assuredness ends up with assured death, or clothing yourself with the heavenly teaching, the heavenly tent manifested by the actions that we take. We don't want to be unclothed. We don't want to die. We don't want to be ashamed. But we have to be willing to be unclothed and have to be willing to die and have to be willing to be shamed in order to follow the teaching, in order to have that heavenly dwelling. The challenge here is the challenge always of the teaching of the resurrection. You want to be swallowed by life, but which life? What is the life you're desiring? Because if the life you're desiring is about your comfort and your ease and your satisfaction, then the decision to kill an animal in order to clothe himself made by Adam in the garden was the right decision. That's the problem. So you want to be swallowed by life. But as we asked in a previous episode, which life is it that you want to be swallowed up by? It's like the two thieves. You know, the one admits this is the fruit of our action. I was a thief, therefore I was executed. Remember me in your kingdom. We'll see what happens next. It's the other thief who mocks Jesus and wants Jesus to save his earthly body. Jesus did not come to save earthly bodies. Jesus came to save that which was in conflict with the earthly body, which is fulfilling God's will. So we groan, and we don't clothe ourselves, and we endure nakedness because we want to be clothed with the teaching and to be swallowed up by the life that comes from God. This is what he's saying. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God. So you are in a situation where you have to behave in a counterintuitive fashion in order to accept and to receive the gift of life which God is offering, which doesn't feel to you like life because of this burden. Doesn't feel like life because it works against your biology. But you have to trust God who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge that he will provide life. Right, because it's the Spirit that is put in us so that we can perform the correct actions according to Torah. So Jesus was killed. I mentioned this on my Pentecost sermon. Jesus was killed, and you have only one chance to stop Jesus. So if you took his life, and suddenly his teaching still abides on the earth, you didn't beat Jesus, and you can't kill him a second time. This is the function of the Spirit. Jesus has been killed. It is the Spirit that we receive after Jesus is gone, so that we can continue to hear the instruction of God. It is the steadfast pledge of God 
that there will always be life because there will always be God's voice in the wilderness showing us the path that is straight. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. And here, the word absent, ekdimeo, does not mean in this context absent as in a kind of dualism where you leave and you come back. Like you leave your body and you come back. It means you don't feel at ease, you don't feel at home with the Lord. In the poetry of this section, you are confronted with a choice. Are you at home with the Lord or are you at home in your earthen vessel? Where do you feel at ease? It's a kind of literary convention. It's a device that emphasizes this choice that we've been struggling with all throughout 2 Corinthians. Where do you feel at ease? And Paul is telling you that you don't feel at ease in the earthen vessel because if you're struggling to be clothed with the garment of God's instruction, your earthen vessel will be under duress. That's the tension with the word ekthimeo. One of the things that Paul keeps raising is this tension of the desire to do the Lord's will and at the same time the desire to take care of ourselves physically and wanting actions that reflect the will of God but in fact ending up with actions that reflect our own biological desires and when we do finally on occasion perhaps manifest actions according to God's will they are painful and difficult and heavy on us and feel unnatural it's like trying to run in a dream you know they what we think should be easy feels hard to do it it's our own biology that's holding us back because we're at home in the body we feel comfortable in our skin and we want to feel more comfortable in our skin that's why we buy a bigger house and we make sure that the pantry is filled with all of our favorite foods because we want to make sure that we are comfortable in our bodies we would hate for our body to feel uncomfortable and paul is challenging that by saying allow your body to be uncomfortable so that you can actually carry out the will of god which will make you feel physically even more uncomfortable it's important, again, to disallow yourself the luxury and the comfort of hearing this philosophically. It is not a dualistic text. It is not talking about an out-of-body experience, which is how I hear people adulterate 2 Corinthians. It is exactly what you said, Richard. It's about the sin of comfort and how that works against the hope of the garment of God's teaching for we walk by trust, by faith, not by sight. We are blindfolded as disciples of the gospel. Everybody's blind, but we actually understand that we are blindfolded, and we walk not by our own perception of the world or of the path, but by the voice of the instructor. It's very much like in these classic kung fu movies where the Kung Fu master puts a blindfold on his disciple and gives him instruction. And as long as he listens, he does fine. He can defend himself. You're not allowed to be, as you say, adulterated in your thinking by the stuff going on around you. You have to focus completely on the teaching. And that's what he's saying. We walk 
by faith, meaning the path that we take is one that we trust is going to end up in the right place, even if we have to go through some hairy territory, not by sight. We don't look at the swamp we're having to walk through. We trust that this swampy path is going to get us to the place where we want to go. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And a better translation would read, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer not to be at home in our own body, but rather to be at home with the Lord, meaning not to trust ourselves, not to serve our earthen vessel and its wants and its desires and its fears, but instead to be at home with the Lord in the light of his teaching and clothed in the garment of his righteousness. Correct. Your priority in your mind is to do the will of God and not to do what is going to make you feel better. When we're comfortable sitting on our couch, we think about how much we could serve the world and our neighbor and how much we could make the world a better place. And then we reach for the bag of chips and we change the channel on the TV. The tension is that the biological, watching the TV and eating the chips, overtakes the desire to do the right thing according to God's will. So Paul is shoring up, okay, at least we can all agree we want to do the will of God, but do we walk according to the will of God. This is where Paul is challenging us, saying, don't get too comfortable on your couch because your intention is not the end of things. There are lots of people that say they want to do things. I don't believe them. I don't believe anybody who says, I want to do something. I'm only interested and will only listen when people do something. And when someone does something, they are demonstrating their priority is correct and they are demonstrating what they want. I mean, assuming that what they want and what they act on is the correct thing. And Paul is saying your priority, your ambition, therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or not at home, to be pleasing to him. So if your priority is to please God, this is the nub. If your priority is to please God, you will not walk according to your own eyes and your own desires and you will not shy away from doing God's instruction when it becomes uncomfortable as someone doing it in an earthen vessel. You will stay the course and you will not lose hope trusting in the pledge and the promise of the Spirit because your priority is correctly aligned. The churches are full of people with good intentions and with a heart for God, or however they want to put it, but to find the people who walk according to the teaching, this is very rare, and we see that this has always been the case if we read Scripture and we read the prophets. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So, you say you want it, God is not interested in what you say you want. He's interested in your actions, in your deeds. Look how Paul emphasizes it. His deeds in the body. Oh, you don't know what deeds are? According to what he has done. What do you mean by what he has done? Whether good or bad. God will judge whether the actions you took were correct or incorrect. So, desire God, have a heart for God, whatever. God doesn't care. God doesn't care who talks about loving him. God doesn't care who has fuzzy feelings in their heart for God. This is irrelevant to God. This is irrelevant even to Judgment Day. If you have a person who hates God in his words and performs the correct actions, 
according to this, that's what they're going to be judged by. And this is the problem, is that we want to be judged by our intention. We want to be judged by our effort, our desire to do something, our thoughts about perhaps performing at some point as we switch the channel on the TV. Instead, there's only one judgment. Christ is going to judge according to your deeds, what you did in your body. And the frame of reference, the measuring stick for your deeds, is not the tent made with human hands. It's not the earthly frame of reference. The frame of reference for the coming judgment is the heavenly city, the heavenly dwelling, and the heavenly tent not made by hands. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. Have a great week. Thanks, you too. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.